Hi, you've found The Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. This Bomb Live event features Irish novelist, journalist, and playwright Colm Tobin and Nigerian novelist and poet Chris Abani, recorded live at the KGB Bar in New York City on April 28, 2006, as part of the Penn American Center's Penn World Voices, the New York Festival of International Literature. This segment was co-produced with WPS1, now Art International Radio, artonair.org. Each author is going to read uh, a portion of their latest novels, novellas, in Chris's case to us, and then a short conversation, I should say, will ensue. Thanks. Hi. Just check in. <laughs> Big man, small voice. Always need to check the mic. Now, of course, I can't read in here. But anyway. Thanks for coming. It's really packed tonight. Thank you, uh, Bomb Magazine, for, for doing this, and KGB and Colm. When, when we were asked to do this conversation, I was like, why are you even asking me? Of course I'll do it. But, but thank you for doing it with me. Um, becoming Abigail. Now, chapter four. The cigarette burned her finger as it smoked down to the filter. She threw it into the river. Following its glowing path, she imagined the hiss of its extinction as it hit the thick, wet blackness. Sucking her finger, she watched a train rumble across a bridge, flickering light from its coaches into the water, back and forth over the Thames, carriages lighting the darkness of warehouses and tired stations. It was like the reassurance of blood, that life would go forwards and backwards but never stop. She pulled up her left sleeve and absently traced the healed welts of her burning. They had the nature of lines in a tree trunk, varied, a different telling. Her early attempts were thick but flat noodles burned into her skin by cashew sap. With time came finer lines from needles marking an improvement. But there were also the ugly whip marks of cigarette tips, angry, impatient, and the words, not Abigail, my Abigail, her Abigail, ghosts, death, me, 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 not nobody. She stared at them. This burning wasn't immolation, not combustion, but an exorcism, cauterization, permanence even. Before she began burning herself, she collected anecdotes about her mother and wrote them down in red ink on bits of paper, which she stuck to her skin, wearing them under her clothes all day. Chafing, becoming, becoming and chafing as though the friction from the paper would abrade any difference, smooth over any signs of the joining until she became her mother and her mother her. But at night, in the shower, the paper would dissolve like a slow lie, the red ink warm from the hot water leaking into the drain like bloody tears. That was when she discovered the permanence of fire. Fumbling about in her bag, she pulled out her purse. Opening it, she stroked the two photographs in the clear plastic pouch, the faces of the two men she loved. Her father, obsidian almost, scowling at the world, and Derek, white, smiling as the sun wrinkled the corner of his eyes. I'm sorry, she said over and over. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry, because I, I had this all marked, and then, and then I couldn't get a cap. And then I got paranoid. I'm like, oh, it's because I'm black. But then they stopped. <laughs> then they stopped for the black guy in front of me, so it couldn't have been that. 
and I thought maybe I was just ugly. So <laughs> this is what happens to writers. <laughs> Sorry, found it. <clears throat> then, chapter 19. This was how she found her father, hanging, the week she was to leave with Peter, hanging, from the hook where the ceiling fan had been. And now a cruel breeze blew in, and he swayed in the raveling and unraveling of the hemp rope, round and around, like a lazy Christmas ornament. And down one leg and pooling on the floor, his reluctance, yellow, and in the heat, putrid, rank with him, his life, his loss, and she didn't cry, didn't seem shocked. She sat on the floor beneath him, felt his toe brush her cheek with every turn, turn by turn his big toe, spiced with his urine, and the uncut toenail rough on her face, sharp enough to cut, cut a small line, line linking her to him, him held only by that line falling, falling from the ceiling in hemp, hemp becoming flesh, flesh the fluid of him leaking, leaking down his leg, leg ending in the toe, toe brushing her cheek with a cut, cut the line, cut the line, line the rope, rope saw rough voices, voices calling, falling heavy in the dust around her, her sitting on the floor, floor where his crumpled body was laid on the heart of concrete, concrete falling away to the soft of loam and he falling, falling into Abigail, Abigail her sitting on the floor, losing him, him losing her, her she, she the reason for him doing this, this love, love calling to love. She sitting on the floor, floor patterned by the footprints of those voices who cut him down, down from the line. She dipped her finger in the pool of him and brought it to her lips, the salt of him, the sum of him. There is no way to leave anything behind. She soaked her hands in him, brought them wet and shiny in the sunlight to her face and smeared, but water is just that. Nothing left behind but the prickle of his evaporation and the faint fragrance of loss, loss. She knew this knew this, knew this. This wasn't grief, grief wasn't the measure. Joy, joy, joy. Shameless, shameful, abandoned, released. She rolled in it, it coated her in liquid and dust. There was no more line. Just this wet, muddy smudge of him and the spent form of her. And she laughed. Thank you. Um, it's um, the winter of 1894 and Henry James has come to Venice because his friend Constance Fenimore Wollstone has died and uh, he has to get rid of her possessions including her clothes and it's decided that they would take the clothes in the gondola and try and bury them in the lagoon. In their journeys from her bedroom to the boat their movements fast and watchful as though they were doing something illegal, they slowly emptied the wardrobes. They carried her shoes and stockings, and then careful not even to glance at each other, her white underwear, which they hid beneath the dresses and coats in the gondola, so could not be seen. They were both out of breath as they went one last time to see if everything had been clear, that the smell had brought her so close to him that he would not have been surprised if at that moment he had found her standing in the bare room. He almost felt free to speak to her, and looking around the room one more time after Tito had descended to the gondola, he sensed that she was there in absolute presence, her old practical self, glad 
that the task had been completed, that nothing of her remained. The room did not seem to him full of dust and air, as much as filled with the sense that should he wish to linger, she would be ready to outstare him. As the light began to fade over the city, and a pink glow mixed with the pale and rich colours of the palazzi on the Grand Canal, and the water reflected the sky, which was tinged with shades of red and pink, they set out towards the lagoon. They were relaxed now, although neither spoke nor acknowledged the other's existence. Henry took in the light and the buildings, gazing back at the salute, feeling a strange contentment. He was tired, but he was also curious to know where exactly Tita would ferry him. It was, he thought, like meeting her again, away from their friends and family and the social world, connecting in calm places. This was how they had known each other. No one would ever discover that he had come here. It was unlikely that Tito would ever volunteer this information to any of their friends. The only person watching them was Constance herself. As Tito steered them out beyond the Lido into waters into which Henry had never before ventured, they moved out until soon they had merely the seabirds and the setting sun for company. At first, Henry believed that Tito was searching for a precise place, but he soon realised that by moving at random back and forth, he was postponing the action they would now have to take. When they caught each other's eye, and Tito intimated that Henry should begin their grim task, Henry shook his head. It might as well have been carrying her body, he thought, to lift her and drop her from the boat, let her sink into the water. Tito continued to circle a small area, and on seeing that Henry would not move, he smiled in mild rebuke and exasperation, and laid down the pole until the gondola began to rock gently in the calm water. Before he reached for the first dress, Tito blessed himself, and then he laid the garment flat on the water as though the water were a bed as though the dresser's owner were preparing for an outing and would shortly come into the room. Both men watched as the colour of the material darkened and then the dress began to sink. Tito placed a second and then a third, each time tenderly on the water, and then continued, working with a slow set of peaceful gestures, shaking his head as they floated away each time and moving his lips at intervals in prayer. Henry watched but did not move. The gondola swayed so gently that Henry was not aware of moving in any direction, merely staying still. As her underclothes sank, he imagined that the consignment lay directly beneath them, falling slowly to the ocean bed. It was only when Tito reached to lift the pole that both of them at the same time caught sight of a black shape in the water less than ten yards away, and Tito cried out. In the gathering dusk it appeared as though a seal or some dark rounded object from the deep had appeared on the surface of the water. Tito took the pole in both hands as if to defend himself and then Henry saw what it was. Some of the dresses had floated to the surface again like black balloons, evidence of the strange sea burial they had just enacted, their arms and bellies bloated with water. As he turned the boat Henry noticed that a greyness had set in over Venice. Soon a mist would settle over the lagoon. Tito had already moved the gondola towards the buoyant material. Henry watched as he worked at it with the pole, pushing the balloon dress 
under the surface and holding it there, and then moving his attention to another dress, which had partially resurfaced, putting that under again, working with ferocious strength and determination. He did not cease pushing, prodding, sinking each dress, and then moving to another. Finally, he scanned the water to make certain that no more had reappeared, but all of them seemed to have remained under the surface of the dark water. Then one swelled up suddenly some feet from them. Leave it, Henry shouted, but Tito moved towards it, and blessing himself once more, he found its centre with the pole and pushed down, nodding to Henry as he held it there, as if to say their work was done. It was hard, but it was done. And then he lifted the pole and took up his position at the prow of the gondola. It was time to go back. He began to move them slowly and skilfully across the lagoon to the city, which lay almost in darkness. And I think we're now meant to talk to each other. Yes. Um, well, just we're writers, we don't talk at all, do we? Stay <laughs> There, there are very few obvious connections between Ireland and, and Nigeria other than the heritage we received um, from Her Majesty um, and His Majesty's government over the years. Um, we haven't struck oil yet, for example. <laughs> but there's an astonishing passage in Chinua Chebi's book, The Trouble with Nigeria. Achebe is in Dublin and he's watching a sort of ceremonial event that the government is organising and he notices that the President of Ireland, Patrick J. Hillary, was not a name we'll be familiar with anybody, but he was the President of Ireland for eight years before Mary Robinson, in other words, in the 1980s. He watches him sidle, just, just move in to, an, to a public event with no obvious security, with no obvious sense of pomp, with no medals, with no uniform, just walks into the room, greets a few people and sits down. And he thinks that's an astonishing idea. And it stays in his mind. Of course, for us, there was an aspect of the sheer dullness of Patrick J. Hillary. <laughs> that nobody wanted to kill him, that nobody much wanted to mob him. You know, that he was neither one thing nor another. And we all minded this very much at the time. And if you were a novelist in the society that he was president of, you had trouble because it was nothing... Because although the conflagration of Northern Ireland was happening just two hours away, it did not impinge on this world that neither the IRA, the UVF, none of those wanted to kill him. You know, and that to try and create fiction in a world which things have quietened, with only the hints sometimes of what had happened before, and with the conflagration close by but not impinging, you know, it, it created certain difficulties. But for Achebe, of course, this was a world that, 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 that he really envied that he really wanted Nigerians to sit up and say, could a president of our country please study this president? And please consider, could, could he please consider modelling himself on this way of coming into a room? And it was one moment where you realised Ireland and Nigeria, the, the business of envying, that, that you could envy a country in a state of war, in a state of chaos, because as a novelist you could have material but this seems to me a very small, pr I mean, a very, the price to pay for fiction. It, it also creates a great difficulty for novelists operating in that theatre of war as it does for novelists in a theatre of dullness. <laughs> that, that it still remains the business, which is the simple business of the sentence, the paragraph, the substance, 
which in war or in peace seems to me not to be a particularly different task no matter what the society but nonetheless the task you faced where your president doesn't did not uh, sidle into rooms un, unguarded nonetheless created a different problem for you than Patrick J. Hillary did for me. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say. I think we both have to talk into this. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I like that. I would agree. But, but I mean, the connections to Ireland are also um, sort of go deeper than just that as well because much of the education in Nigeria was from Irish priests, Irish missionaries. In fact, my father was at the University of Cork and um, it's still known around Cork as that lady Egypt who would drive around without a driver's license, the only black man in Cork, <laughs> speeding down the middle of the road, <laughs> causing pedestrians to flee um, either way. So there are, there are all these other connections, but also um, there, there's something about the way that the Irish mission, the Irish priests or the island in, in that way was different in Nigeria from, say, the Scottish, the, the Protestants. There was a quietness, an almost apology in the way that they were sort of civilizing us in that sort of sense. But they were, they were the only ones who, who stayed in the Biafran Civil War, these incredible nuns and, and priests who would sort of put themselves between the soldiers and the guns in that way. And I think they also made a strong impression on people like my father and Achebe. But um, the ways in which that sort of quiet elegance continues uh, even till today, not just in, in, um, in the area of government, but also in the way that the literature is produced. Um, I remember in London doing a reading in the same vicinity as Ted Hughes and him sort of not talking to any of the unknown poets and then doing a reading in, in Dublin with Seamus Heaney who I didn't know this guy just shuffles into the room in a shabby jacket sits down next to me he's drinking a Guinness I come off stage and he's like that was rather nice and I was like who is this drunk geezer <laughs> and so they announced you know Nobel Prize winner Seamus Heaney to read and so I'm looking for Seamus and this guy turns and says here hold my Guinness so I'm holding his Guinness he's his jacket and it's him and then we all went around to his house afterwards and that was very remarkable Pat Moran every, all these young poets sitting around the floor in Seamus's house and this notion um, that, that art was, was available to everyone and, and there was no hierarchy there's a sort of quiet elegance too that, and I, I see that in your writing. I wondered if that, the tradition, because Nigeria, the tradition is more of a bombast, and so people like me who are more quiet don't don't often get, we're seen as aberrations. But I, I don't know what you think about that sort of quiet elegance. Um, I think there are two traditions in Ireland. One which is um, that you want to write a book which will change books forever, which will be, which will have its reader contained within the book, and that they have been. Yeah, change the book. What else is there? And that they, those books have made a difference all over the world. For example, Ulysses, for example, the work of Beckett, for example, Flannel Brown's At Swim Two Birds, that, that, that they take on the, the entire business of language itself, consciousness itself, the idea of making a book in itself. And this has happened in more recent years in Scottish writing, in, in the work of James Kellman, in the work of um, Alistair Gray, Janice Galloway, Irving Welsh, that in a time where there's a democratic deficit, where there's a vacuum, a total vacuum in a, in, in a society, where, for example, no one from Scotland was electing or was voting for the Tory Prime Minister, and the silence that that left in Scotland was filled by a sort of return of modernism at a very late stage to Scotland. But in the, as the Republic of Ireland settled down, there was an older tradition which could be worked on, which came from song fundamentally and also from prayer, which tended to be melancholy 
which often worked best in the short story, which tended to be to use unadorned sentences, which tended to be very respectful to rhythms and to uh, the idea of a book, you know, itself. And and I suppose someone the the sort of master of this who died last month was the Irish writer John McGahern, who perfected this in certain ways. And to some extent, John Banville has, has moved it in another way. So, so, that, so there, there are two ways of working. But what we don't have in, in, in Ireland, I mean, we have Ulysses, which if you want to know what Dublin was like in 1904, you really wouldn't go there. You know, there are many other books that would tell you much more. <laughs> that that, that there, is, there isn't a novel we have which describes the disintegration of, say, Gaelic society and the replacement of, say, Gaelic society with English-speaking society. We have the plays of Brian Friel to some extent, but we don't have a Things Fall Apart. Mm. We don't have a a novel from which everything must take its bearings. It seems to catch history at a certain point and deal with it using a sense of fable, but also making it almost like a song almost simple, immensely moving, as well as complex, but that could be read by everyone all over the world. We don't have a Things Fall Apart. Is Things Fall Apart as important a book in Nigeria as it has been for people outside Nigeria? Um, well, yes and no. Um, that's fascinating. This, I was going to ask you about Ulysses, and, and, and so the, this way in which you, um, and I, I think I do to a certain extent, are drawn to the city of other writers. They want to inhabit it in, in a different way, but we can talk about that later. But um, things fall apart. Was essentially, it was, a, it was, a, it was. An, it's an important book in the sense, um, stylistically, the ways you describe it. But it, it has more import, I think, uh, as a political moment for us, and has caused me in recent years to actually question the shape of the Nigerian novel. Is there actually a Nigerian novel? Because as beautiful as Achebe's book was and is, it didn't come from a, a, an aesthetic engagement. It comes from political engagement. It's not written. It's written in a response to uh, Joyce Carey's Mr. Johnson. It's written in a response to colonialism. Whereas Amos Tutwala, who comes before him, uh, and even Sipronekwensi, who does uh, the beautiful, simple style of writing, seem to be engaged more in in their own imagination, in their own aesthetic. And it, it's sort of interesting that there are almost two schools of writing that have emerged in Nigeria. Tutwala, you can see Tutwala, Fagunwa, Shoinka, Okri. Helen Oyeyemi, myself, um, and then you can see sort of Achebe, Festus Iyayi, Okwewo, or going all the way through to Helen Habila, for instance. But, but the palm, so the palm wine drunkard then right. is written, you know, is in a sense written using, getting everything there is in the, say, oral culture. Right. Uh, playing with it. Playing with um, it in, in this new form, which is a written form. Yeah, right. and, it, and it's totally alert to the possibilities of modernism, of bringing, of bringing a modernist aesthetic into a society which has had an oral culture. Completely. And also being aware of that political moment at the same time because it, it takes all of that into itself. Um, and it is very subversive of... And, and sort of, in a way, Achebe has set up a difficult thing to follow where he he's set up the representational approach to Nigerian literature in that we have to perform the culture to other people. Uh, whereas I would much prefer to be like Joyce, quite frankly. Um, yes, but, yes, but Joyce comes in two guises. He comes in the guise of, of the author of Dubliners, mm-hmm. which, which for anyone working in sort of that trying to create something tiny, 
some moment seen and understood, offer a poetic zeal to a certain thing of de- surrounding, say, defeat or poverty. Mm. That Dubliners does that in a way that Ulysses completely breaks the possibility of anyone doing that again. But then, of course, you can you can never contain those those two traditions. No. But, for example, in what's the name of the later novel that Achebe wrote, which has a wonderful woman character that Nadine Gordimer called the best female character yet created by an African writer. What's the name the, of that the book? Of God, Arrow of God. No, no, the later one. Man of the People? No, the later one. Antils of the Savannah. Antils of the Savannah. Yeah. I, mean that, I mean that you must recognise that as an aesthetic achievement, that that, that woman's presence in, in the book is not... I mean, I know that she has a role in politics, but, for example, when she talks about the taste of sperm in her mouth and how she feels about that, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to do with Nigerian politics. It's to do with, you feel... It's it depends absolute, on the sperm it is, <laughs> But you feel... Irrespective of whose sperm it is, you feel <laughs> that the way it's described, that just that moment of description, you feel that could be in any country. I'm sorry, I picked a yeah. good example. That could be in any country anywhere. And that, and that, and that the novel is full of, of, of extremely interesting perceptions about people, about men and women, about her, her voice especially. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I mean, is, am I right about that? Completely, you're absolutely right. But but that's part of the beauty and the tragedy of that. In a sense, um, the urgency of that of that particular insur- political insurgency. It's the com- when you're combating colonialism, then you're dealing with internal issues. Means that it's not until his fourth novel that Achebe is actually able to play in this aesthetic. He tries it in his second novel with Arrow of God, which is a beautiful book. Um, but it's actually in the fourth one where he begins to experiment with form, he experiments with, with voice in this way. But people like Gabriel O'Cara had done this already with the voice, and um, again, Shoenka was doing this already in a certain kind of way. And the, that's the thing that happens when. Um, in those kind of contexts where literature takes on this role almost, so that I wouldn't be able to write today if Achebe hadn't written. So it's not a criticism of him in that, in that sort of sense of it. it it's, it's that his generation had to sort of create the, the basis for us, for us, my generation, to be even taken seriously as writers playing within the aesthetic, that, that their privileging of the political moment it creates a, a Nigerian novel, a voice for the Nigerian novel that allows my generation to enter and start to talk about the aesthetic moment in a sense. So it, it's not a, a disrespect in a way, but it, it's sort of trying to, I don't like sacred cows, and so it's sort of trying to, to see the ways in which things can be uh, built up on that and, and, and sort of explored in that sort of context. And so that's, that's kind of where I was coming from. Um, you've written recently about Soyinka, and um, how, how important has he been? Well, he, it's a hard one. Soinka is, is important both as... Um, I mean, you can't talk about Nigeria in any context without Shoenka. I mean, the country, the country comes to birth in almost in Shoenka's imagination when you really think about it. There's no political moment, there's no nationalistic moment that, ha- that he doesn't have some involvement in, either in trying to arbitrate justice or in some way satirizing his literature in, in, in this sort of ways... So purely as a voice of conscience, he's been the one consistent. Um, we have 300 ethnic groups, 250 languages, 2,000 dialects, and English is sort of the main way of communicating. But those ethnicities are violent ethnicities. There are nations that have been forced together under an imaginary boundary, and so he's the one person that is able to remain a Yoruba national 
and yet transcend it to become a Nigerian at the same time, to occupy that duality that's required. And you see that in his work as well, because his work begins to achieve a kind of universalism that, that has often led people to criticize him, say he's not the Nigerian writer because he's not he doesn't bring the folklore or the folktale into it. For him, myth and mythology exist only in terms of what they can do for the aesthetic moment, the way it did with the Greeks and the way it did with the Romans in many ways. So for me as a writer, he's the most influential, both as a voice of conscience, but also in terms of uh, the aesthetic rigor. I, I found, I mean, compared to Things Fall Apart, I never liked the interpreters. Mm-hmm. Seems to me very dull indeed. Mm-hmm. Is that just an outsider's view? Um, it <laughs> It can be an outsider's view, but also you know it's also tinged with. Um, Maybe his theatre is, is his best work, is it? Well, theatre is his best work, but I mean also when you think about it, I mean if you were reading, if you, if you didn't, I mean Ulysses can be considered in the same sort of context in Joyce's book or even you know um, Finnegan's Wake. So it's that or Beckett in many ways, like Beckett in the plays and Beckett in the novels, two different kind of inhabitations in a way. It is, I think, it is an outsider an outsider's view, because in many ways the truth is that Things Fall Apart performs a certain reassuring expectation of Africa, and that the resistance to that performance automatically creates a distance. And so even within my generation, the writers among us who perform Africa better um, get better context. And it's quite unusual that, I, in, in a way that I'm lucky to even get the kind of exposure I get, because all my work is about resisting that performance. So the storytelling... I don't know. Yeah, it's a difficult well, balance in a way. Yeah, yes, but it seems to me that you've taken both. It seems to me that in Graceland, you, you have you're certainly alert to what Tutuela has done mm-hmm. in in terms of you know repetitions and style and taking things. But also there there there, there are moments which which are pure pieces of nineteenth century Russian realism, mm-hmm. you know, which one one could say both Achebe and and Soyinka have worked with. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that you're actually taking the two the, the two parts mm-hmm. and Bring, bring, bringing them together in order to dramatize what is, what is quite a difficult public life mm-hmm. for quite a fragile conscience who's Elvis. Right. So that you, you're, you're actually, isn't that correct that you're actually conscious of, are, are you conscious of using both? Very conscious and, but more conscious of actually taking directly from the Russians. Um, um, and it's sort of, there's all those references in the book too, to the books that he's reading that sort of talk about the way the book is made. But having read Dostoevsky very early, 10, 12 years old, and being completely sucked into that ridiculous um, existential melancholy that 13-year-old boys fear um, that hasn't been earned in a way was really powerful to it. So there was a lot of that, and a lot of Dickens too. I mean, uh, it's a colonial education, and so I had the same references that they had. But I think for me, um, Schoenke and Tutuola have been much more the influence than, um, than Achebe in terms of the actual writing style, but in terms of how you build a worldview, Achebe has been more important in terms of how you integrate what is essentially an Igbo cosmology into a very modern contemporary 21st century novel. So there are all of those things, but there's also James Baldwin playing in, into this. Yes, who gets well. mentioned, so does Ralph Ellison. Right. There, there, there are sly references Ro- to both. And yeah, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, so yeah. All, of those, all of those come together in that mishmash. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, have, um, I have, I think, with every novel, um, there's a sort of shadow novel, mm-hmm. the novel that should have been for starters, and that was in my head at first, that was set in a much more public place. For example, I was in Spain when Franco died. I was at all the demonstrations. I was at all the meetings for the subsequent years. There, there was always a novel to be written. Beauty says, oh, there's a novel to be written about that. 
those years in Spain. But when I went to write a novel, it was about the earlier years when there was nothing much happening. Mm. And it's been true with every novel. I think that, you know, the Henry James book, it really should have been a novel about Oscar Wilde, which would be much more exciting <laughs> and funnier and more glamorous <laughs> and sadder in the end, you know. That, but that I was also conscious in Graceland that there, there are things you, you actually are leaving out, mm. that the war is mentioned in passing. Mm-hmm. that it must have been tempting at some point to have done a very, very big war novel, mm-hmm. a written the novel, like, oh, this is the novel of the Biafran War, mm-hmm. um, or this is the novel, Ken Sarawiva has mentioned, you know, this right. is the novel of the oil, you know, of the Shell novel. Right. But, but you're very careful to maintain the single conscience, the, almost the playfulness of that at times, the way you move the novel from one thing to another. But it must have been tempting. There's so, there must be someone telling you somewhere that why aren't you writing the novel of dot dot? Do you get that? No. <laughs> well, yeah. Well. Oh yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, of course, you do. That you get the novel. Where is the novel about Northern Ireland? Where right. is the novel of the civil rights movement? Where is the novel of the IRA? Right. And why don't you write it? You know. And yeah. so, I'm writing a novel about Henry James. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's funny because when I was reading this book, the, 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 the beautiful opening scene with the play and where Oscar is mentioned and all that, so so, I, I can see that temptation. Yes, it is tempting. Um, <laughs> the thing is that Graceland was trying to do the very reverse of that. It was trying to be both minute and epic, um, which is a very sort of contradiction in terms in a way, but... It, Here's a book that's trying to deal with a whole generation, my generation of Nigerians and our coming of age, and our notion of the country's coming of age in a way. So it sprawls all over the place, but it, it couldn't, it had to sort of follow this single consciousness if it was going to, um, if it was going to bear through in any kind of, uh, with any degree of um, resonance. Otherwise, it would veer too easily into the polemic. Yeah. Because, um, and, and, you know, and also... Or the, or the too easily political. Right. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. The, but also, I think, for me, what, what happened is that I had published novels, and I wasn't publishing novels, um, because I was writing really bad novels um, for a while. Um, <laughs> and then I started doing poetry. But when I came back and did Graceland, I wanted to, in many ways, it was like a manifesto. It was like, the, these are the themes that I want to talk about. So I want to talk about gender, I want to talk about sexuality, I want to talk about the performance of masculinity and how that is always associated with violence and the terrain of that is the female body within Nigeria. All of those sort of spaces of silence that exist in Nigerian literature and are not privileged in the way that the easily political is privileged. And so I have since sort of pulled, like Abigail in a way comes out of that, there's a, a book about a boy soldier that comes out of the, the mention, but again they're all novellas they're all very small and minute um, because I'm afraid of that easy political grandstanding. Um, having been involved in the political movement myself, I, I come to, um, I've come to an age where I realize that rhetoric has its place, but it's a limitation, and that what I'm looking for now is a more effective way of discussing. And I think in that way I've returned more and more to Baldwin because Baldwin was always about the human moment, the quiet human moment. He, and he never, he never shied away from race. He never shied away from the civil rights movement. But he never shied away from dealing with issues of sexuality. But being 10, again, and reading uh, another country in Nigeria, growing up, as a, I was a seminarian, I was in a Catholic house, in a very homophobic culture, and coming to the end of this book and realizing this is all light. 
what, what James is saying is that the only aberration in the world is the absence of love. That's what's perverse. And that what's even more perverse is the giving up on the search for love, which is, this, I think, that melancholic voice that carries us in the quiet moments. So that's, in a way, what I keep wanting to return to. And it always is a shadow. Like, I have just finished a novel that I had to kill a shadow novel to write. It was Elvis in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> because my agent thought it would be great to write, like, an L.A. white teeth. Um, and so I killed it eventually. And it's a story about a guy called Black who wants to be a woman, doesn't know, and so starts to dress up as the Virgin Mary and appear all over East Los Angeles and then all the Mexicans start forming pilgrimages too. <laughs> so it became a different book, in it, but it's a much more quiet book in that way. I, mean, I, mean, I think. Do you want a drink? I'd love a drink, actually. What would you like? Anything non-alcoholic. Anything non-alcoholic. Okay, that's a challenge, but... Water. I'm on it. Okay. Can I have a beer? Yes. <laughs> um, Rolling Rock. I have to say it was an American accent. But, I don't understand. Uh, I want, yeah, did you get that? <laughs> I wanted to ask you too about your this sort of quietness at the heart of your uh, of your work. It's sort of funny because I, I, I was at the Landon House, I think, after you'd been there in, in Marfa, Texas, and I was reading uh, some of the work you'd done and some of the things you've written. And there's always this, always this gracefulness about you, um, about your writing. There's, it's elegant, it's sparse, reading like Blackwater Light, which is another question we can talk about. Where the hell do you get these beautiful titles from? Because I want to know. But um, there's this quiet elegance to the way you write, and, and, um, and you've done novellas yourself. And I was wondering about that. Is that, it, for you, is, it, is the more distilled voice the better voice for you? Do you like it more in this sense? I think there's a lot of fear involved that, that um, you're so afraid that you're going to mess up the sentence that you leave it short. You know, and um, with this book, I made a bit of an effort to make it a sentence a bit longer. But, um, and I admire anyone enormously who can you know, write a sentence with more than 10 or 15 words in it. But I, but I, I generally can't. And try and keep paragraphs the same. And, but but it, is, it, it, arri it arises really from having to, having to struggle enormously just to get the thing down. There's no, I have no natural ability, I don't think. You know, which, which I, I have colleagues in Ireland, I mean, other writers, who have, I think, a real natural thing, that almost like having a natural singing voice, mm. where, where you can write anything. I, I don't have that at all. So it always comes from fear, I think. That's funny you should say that. Um, do you know Dermot Healy mm. and his work? Because Dermot's a good friend of mine, he actually. He has, he has a natural ability to just do anything with words. But he says the same thing, though, that you say that he's terrified. Like Song of a Goat took him 10 years, he says. Um, and it's a beautiful book. So I don't know. Do you think that it's just that Irish writers are better writers and so feel that they're not as good? There is something to that, don't you think? No, I think that, I think that in, in societies like yours and mine, that, that a mother's realize at certain points, if my son could read and write, there'll be a way out of poverty. Mm. And that paper and that from childhood became your mother watching over you writing, thinking this is one way for you out of poverty. And, you know, the priesthood might be a way out, becoming a teacher. But there were no, in my family, there was no higher goal than becoming a teacher. If anyone had said about, you know, starting Google, or you know, or making money, that would have been considered quite wrong. <laughs> but, but becoming a teacher would be what you should be. Not only this, not not about improving society. It was about you that it would be a steady job and a good job. But there was no higher goal ever mentioned. Yeah. 
in my world. Right. Um, and it wasn't about becoming a priest. They, they, they wouldn't have liked that. It was something about priests that gave my mother the creeps. <laughs> but um, teachers, I mean, and, and most of us became teachers. My father was a teacher. Mm. Um, there's something else I wanted to go back to. If you read these two books together, mm-hmm. Graceland and Abigail, mm-hmm. now, there's no Irish novel that ends in a wedding. It simply couldn't be done. <laughs> if there were a wedding, and you know, you, your friend Dermot Healy would be the best to write it, right. it would be a chaotic wedding in which there would be a great deal of trouble. There's, there's always dislocation. Watch for the dead father, the dead mother. I mean, so say, what's Ulysses about? Oh, Ulysses is a man whose father committed suicide, whose son died, walking in a city, and, meet, and whose wife is having an affair with somebody else walking in a city meeting a young man whose mother has died and you say ah this must be an Irish novel <laughs> and um, it's right through the dead fathers the dead mothers there's no you almost cannot open I mean I don't know how I would write a novel I really I really mean and this might sound like a joke but it, it has to be true and that I don't know how I would start a novel in which there would be two parents Mm. and they would live throughout the book and be alive at the end of the book. Right. It just simply, there, there must be someone pulling the strings above, <laughs> saying, it just, you'd open a chapter saying, and in that winter, you know, the, and it will always be the mother died. And, uh, and, uh, and that if you read these two books together, and if you remove the, 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 the ideas of, uh, the, the, the ideas about, say, Nigeria, or the ideas about style, there are two novels about someone whose mother has died right. the, and, and who's a ghostly presence in both of the books right. and that that actually um, th- there's a theory of this which I, I mean if, if we were French theorists now we would be able to say that in societies like ours which have been broken and recreated and mismanaged and, and they now have dull presidents or abusive presidents that, that uh, as opposed to stable countries right. like, such as France say that, that it's um, <laughs> I'm not going to mention the United States at all today. <laughs> that, that you, that you, um, and, and I think Baldwin has Baldwin has come. You know, that that you, that you can't write a novel right. in which is not a dead parent haunting someone or other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but is everything about Nigeria is about haunting? I mean, the whole every every. Igbo Yoruba house of culture, it's all about the ghosts. You, the the dead are everywhere, and they're not dead. The dead just don't stay dead. Um, parents used to be buried in the living room where, when I was growing up, and so the, the rug in the middle was over the graves, and you couldn't have a drink without a libation. So it's like the dead were drinking your drinks, they were eating your food, and and they um, they informed everything that the living did in so many ways. But they were the dead. The dead became, or have become in many ways, partly because there's a, there's a real existential loss at the heart of what it means, I think, to be Nigerian, um, if we can even use those terms. Because 300 years, 400 years ago, much of the culture was interrupted when the Portuguese arrived and began to deal in slaves. And not in the, and I'm not talking about this in the way in which all oh, the the boogeyman Portuguese came along because there were complex empires in Africa. It was a negotiation that benefited both sides in that sense. But what happens is that almost from that point on, Nigerian culture begins to cede itself to the invader or to this invasion of otherness 
Um, so that even now, what we talk about in Nigeria, people have a certain Victorianness about their what they think is their culture that actually comes from Victorian England colonial presence. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a man in Graceland who dresses in a three-piece suit right. and tries to learn English, but gets it all wrong. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really sort of, yeah, he yeah. teaches speaks Spanish. It's sort of moment in the book where it really makes you. You know, yeah. shiver. It's a, it's a tiny appearance, but you right. really remember it. Yeah, mm. it's that way in which we have. So we're always inventing um, a, a, a self, but all those selves are built around ghosts. But sadly, violent ghosts, malevolent ghosts. And so, in these books, and in in fact, the the, the like just he said that now the book that comes out in, in next spring, the father's dead. So de- dead mother, dead mother, dead father. I know. I, I mean, I could have told you that. <laughs> But it's sort of in the, that I'm, I'm trying to ask a question because it also that these inventions hover so much around patriarchy and masculinity. That is it possible if you create this absence instead of instead of the absence being the malevolent place, can it be a place that can enfold you so that identity is formed in more gentle ways, um, and so that the haunting is a, a conversation between, particularly in Abigail, between the dead mother and the girl. And that the girl tries to occupy the space of the haunt in terms of reclaim this malevolence and through spells, which was what writing is and poetry, to turn it into this moment of possibility. So the, the, for me, it's alchemy all the time in that way, certainly, yeah. Um, you mentioned Baldwin. I just want to say that he remains a, a haunting figure simply because of the way he tried to solve a number of very difficult problems. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the people that I most admire of the century, and I'd mm. love to have met him. And everything I hear about him, he sounds like a really, you know, truly great person. Right. And, and the story that you mention, which is going, to, is, is what is it, going to meet the man? Right. It seems to me the weak of all the things he did, the the, the one moment of pure weakness where okay. he has the it's, it's the white man in bed with his wife, mm-hmm. you know, getting erotically excited over the idea of a lynching. Mm-hmm. But other than that story, other than that story. Go tell it on the mountain, the next one then deciding only white people and mostly gay people. Mm-hmm. And his and his agent told him to burn the book. Mm-hmm. His publishers wouldn't publish it. It was first published in Britain. Um, and you know, suddenly deciding I I am and supporting William Starr and when 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 he wrote Nat Turner, he is telling our story. Mm-hmm. And and insisting in the essays, in the polemics, and in then another country mm-hmm. on, on actually holding the fort for art, that we're artists and we, we, we will write our essays and our polemics as we please, but the novels are sacred space, mm-hmm. which will not be invaded, if you don't mind, by anything other than stylistic concerns mm-hmm. and, and deep, deep-seated deep concerns mm-hmm. of, of the authors that are sometimes very, very private indeed. Mm-hmm. But, but, but he does remain a great example, doesn't he? He does, and um, it's funny because <laughs> that scene, that the, the reference to um, to going to meet the man at the end of Graceland was an actual accident. What had happened? It was originally referenced to Morrison and Beloved with Setha's back with a with a choke cherry tree because I wanted to have a tree there. And then the the copy editor came back and said, "Oh, uh, that book came out in 1985. And your book is set in '83, so it can't work." And I was like, "Damn." <laughs> So I went back and I read Baldwin. It was for that very reason, because um, I was having a conversation with Percival Everett, and he said this book. Who's Percival Everett? He gets mentioned in both of them. He's a he's an amazing African American writer um, who's been a, a huge 
a huge presence in, in, in for me because what he did, I mean, I've had many writing teachers dead and alive. And what Percival really did for me was, um, because I started off as a genre writer, I was writing thrillers, um, and sort of find a way for me to blend all that with, with the literary. He really brought things together for me. But he sort of suggested that very thing, that since the end of the book was a moment of redemption, where this boy, first of all, he tries to throw away his mother's body in the diary when he can't. So he suggested that I use that story because, in a way, it had to be him rejecting this idea that you come to yourself as a person of color over this terrain of polemic whiteness, that you have to do it by collapsing yourself. So it's funny you picked up on that because that's why it was there, but it was there by accident. But that's the thing the, the, that happens, the, the real challenge, I think, for contemporary African writing. Uh, I was just in South Africa and um, apartheid's over. And all of a sudden, a whole generation of writers have no muse, have no subject matter. Because for suddenly, the new spaces cannot be occupied because those deep-seated concerns uh, that are often private, but are often sort of linked with the public space, uh, suddenly have been evacuated. And it's only a few people like Zoe Wickham and, and even Nadine Gordimer doesn't seem to know quite where to locate herself in this new moment. And that's an interesting thing for African and particular Nigerian writers. The, the moment has changed, and now we have this, we have the more global moment, the more diasporic, where even when you're in Nigeria, you're, you're Blackberry all the time. You're, so the, there is no, there's none of the usual places of engagement anymore. We have to find new topographies for our, our imagination or new ways to do it in a certain sense. And that w one of the ways you've tried to solve this, um, and it's by implication very much in Graceland, even by the title, and of course, uh, you know, th this, is, this is also something that Ireland and Nigeria have in common, that, that both societies were ready to let America wash over them yes. in every way. For example, there's no such thing as Irish capital. Right. That if Irish people have money, they, 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 they put it in a bank or they buy more houses, <laughs> but they wouldn't ever invest it in anything that might win or make or lose money. There's no, there's no tradition of that. So that all the current boom in Ireland is outside investment, mainly American investment. And no one has any problem with that. And if you like music, you like American country music. I people adore American country music. If you're a writer, you love Hemingway. Mm. You love Scott Fitzgerald. That it comes in in many, many guises. Mm. And for example, there are only two countries in the world where you, where you have your passport stamped you know, outside America by Americans, by, you know, actual by Americans. There's mm. Canada and Canada, Ireland. Yeah. That, that we see ourselves in certain ways as, as an aspect of America mm. and, and we're, are happier for, for that to continue, you know, despite the fact that there would be very little support for the current regime in Ireland. But, and whereas everyone adored Clinton, you know, Clinton was not only, as Tony Morrison said, an honorary black man, but he was an honorary Irishman. <laughs> and um, that, that what you're, that, that no matter what would happen, there are images throughout the book, great, well, Graceland, Elvis, but, but it isn't overplayed. I mean, I mean it isn't as though you, the oil companies, although Sarah Weaver's mentioned, the oil companies don't come in very much. But nonetheless, there, there is a possibility of, of a, it's a great subject, isn't it? Mm -hmm. the, the business, and he goes to America at the end of the book. Oh, sorry, I've given the end away. But you know what? I, sorry, <laughs> forget that last bit. But that, that, that relationship between Nigeria, Portugal, Nigeria, Britain, Nigeria, and its own internal disputes mm -hmm. then almost pales with this new one, mm -hmm. which is Nigeria and America. Mm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is... Um, but it's, it's always, in many ways, it's always been a concern of, of Nigerian literature, the engagement with the Western 
voice, as it were. The, the, but it's always been seen as um, the bogeyman coming in to erase existing culture. But since we don't really know what is existing culture, uh, I think that's partly in Nigeria why it's been so easy, because much of the culture we have has been fragmented and rebuilt. It, it's ghost, it's, it's residual, it's this haunting, it's this melancholic ectoplasm in a certain way. And so it's easy for that space of global American culture to take to take over. But I was more interested, in, particularly in Graceland, in the moments of possibility, rather than it being a limitation, but it, it being a subversion too, how, you know, he... he it, this, there's a Nigerian kid putting on white face to imitate a, a, a white guy who imitated black people, um, sort of ridiculing the notions in, of race as limitation uh, uh, or ownership of art. And that I think my argument or my, my belief is that ultimately art in any form, literature, music, um, even cinema, offers dialogue in some form. And once dialogue is introduced and it's, the subversive element comes in and so it can be transmuted into something else but America exports itself to Nigeria in this way Nigeria digests it and then exports itself back to America in a completely different way and a lot of things that we take on here actually come from that conversation it's been it's been going on since uh, since um, say Af American sailors will go to the docks of Liberia and Ghana early 19th century mid 19th century and teach the kids the riffs, the, the blues riffs, which the Malians have brought back, so that high life is built around this conversation, in a way. Um, so I was looking at it more like that, as possibility rather than as limitation, as something beautiful, um, in a way. But, um, yeah. Graceland is one of those books, I don't know if anyone else has had the experience while reading it. I would love to have seen you reading, writing it, to have known was it day or night, to have known you know, how many words per day, to know the room... It, it, there are funny books like that where you would love to see the thing being created. Yeah. Could you give us some idea? You know, was it written in, in, in America? What, what was in the room? Was it day or night? What, you know. <laughs> does anyone else? Does anyone else have that feeling while reading it? Just wanting to know more. Like where? Why? You know. It was written in America. On a laptop. <laughs> Mostly in Starbucks. <laughs> Which seems appropriate, um, and uh, sometimes in um, the, the, there's a cafe in, in LA called the Novel Cafe where all the screenwriters gather. And I didn't know this at the time. And I would it's open till three in the morning. And I would sit there writing, um, and I write longhand and then type. And so every few minutes, someone will come up and go, "What you working on, man?" <laughs> so I have this idea. So we, we so huh, Elvis, huh, in Nigeria, huh? Well, well, I got this stuff about drugs. Maybe we can do sort of Elvis meets the cowboys meets the drug dealers, but set in Lagos. Um, and then, so eventually I put a sign on my computer that said, not a screenwriter. <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> but <laughs> it was written very frenetically. It was written in nine months. And part of that was um, I got obsessed with it. I was writing sometimes 16-hour days. And the real difficulty is actually making the fractured language, because my tendency as a poet is to make everything beautiful. But I wanted to capture the, that, that cityscape. So that's sort of what was going on there, um, in a sense. But I noticed, too, that you do a lot of your work. You, you were in the Lannan house. I wanted to ask you about that, because that was a freaky place to be in. No, I was never in Lannan. I was in Yaddo. Oh, you were in Yaddo? Yeah, I yeah, thought you were in, yeah, yeah. in, 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 in Marfa, Texas. No, no, reason. they never asked me. If, oh. if you know them, do tell no, them. I will tell them then. <laughs> oh, okay, well... <laughs> I thought you were, because they, they would have this train that would go by at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it had the most melancholic whistle. But this is a town where the cemetery is segregated still. And sort of to be there for months and months working, 
where the sky blends with the landscape. It looks like you're caught in a, in a, in a glass bubble. That's why I wrote this book in, in three weeks, because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> and um, they have the Marfa lights, which are supposed to be alien ships. But, you know, the only aliens that get getting arrested were me by the Border Patrol. Every time I was driving somewhere, they would pull me over. And uh, But I wanted to ask you about how you write, how you make uh, the work you make. I'm very intrigued, because every book you do is very different. But at the core of everything, um, like Henry James, so this notion of exile, this this Henry James being a U.S. Or, you know, writer, whether, ex- you know, what this sort of separation, the displacement, this, this sense that a lot of your work is even with, say, black, you know, backwater light, it's always about displacement, about melancholy, about about loss. So how do you infuse all of that in, this, like, the most sparse sentences? There's, you know, how do you write? How do you do it? Well, well, I wonder, and, and, and when I'm finished, I'm going to ask you if this is true about you, that if the first five or six books you read at a certain age matter to you more than any number of experiences or tend to merge with those experiences, and that they become your style, those books, that a DNA of you, a magnet in you, hits a magnet in them, and that certainly reading The Sun Also Rises um, in Tremor on the beach in when I was 16 or 17, and the being in Paris, the being sexually impotent, the going to Spain. I'm not sexually impotent. <laughs> the going to Spain... The, they're having a whale of a time in Spain, but always being separate from the others. I did all that afterwards. I actually did what happens in that book afterwards. I mean, it wasn't just that I went to those things. I didn't like the bullfighting thing. It wasn't my scene, but I went to the other things, the, the more Catalan things, and I was always there watching the others. I was always the one, you know, not causing the grief, but only knowing the hotel owner, like that guy in the book. And certainly, when I was when I was that age, sixteen, seven, I'm talking 1971-72, Penguin had, had made three. Sartre's trilogy was read by serious people. It's not read now. And Guernica was on the cover of the Penguin edition, and it was everywhere you went. And reading, especially the first two of those books, that that sense, which I didn't know anything about his philosophy, and I and, and I still have no interest in his philosophy, but those two books made an enormous difference to me. And then coming through those two books to Camus, to the outside, and to living like that. And I ended up living like that. I, I, didn't, I didn't murder anybody, but nonetheless, those books didn't just affect the way I wrote, but they affected the way I lived. Notice I'm not mentioning any Irish books, because of course in those years, the censorship had been lifted. Every book was coming in from outside, and the last thing you wanted to read right. was about you know, Ireland. Was, was, was Frank O'Connor or, or any of that generation. You didn't want to read them. I read them later. Mm. But at but that age, 16, 17, 18, those books really hit me. And, and then the business of reading A Movable Feast and Hemingway saying, always stop writing when, when you think you, you have the next sentence absolutely ready. Don't write, you know, don't do it. And Hemingway's description of drafting and, and perfecting. Mm. It, although I don't draft as much as I should, and he didn't either, indeed. But um, <laughs> but 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 those books were what mattered, mm. and to say that nothing else since of either experience or reading has mattered in any way like that, and that they may be responsible for much more than anything else is. Wow, that's incredible, though. Um, 
but I, I want to ask you, we're still keeping with that, though. Is anything about being Catholic or growing up in a Catholic? I grew up very Catholic. I grew up going to seminary and being kicked out <laughs> several times, actually, for heresy. Um, it was anything, because there's, there's something about being Catholic that seems you're existentially displaced all the time. It's almost like joy is a foreign country, and that when you travel to it, you take all this flagellation, which I'm not you, I'm talking about me here. And I was curious if that, if that in any way also informs any of the work you do, that, that, that you rub against that. Well, well, I'm involved in a, you know, in a legal action against the church at the moment because um, I had a very happy time with Diocesan priests, many of whom, well, not many of whom, some of whom were later found to be, to be abusers. And the action is that they ruined my self-confidence because they abused everyone around me. They didn't come near me. And that I want to... I'm suing the Pope and some cardinals and the individuals themselves, some of whom are still alive, for what they, what they did to me. Um, but... Uh, that, that... Catholicism didn't affect me very much other than the, the rituals were, were both interesting and boring and I was an altar boy. I find it very hard to create a Catholic character I'm, I'm, you know, the characters in the novels tend to be, they know about it, but they don't really care about it very much. But I suppose um, the, the, there is an elephant in the corner here, which is, which is the matter of being gay. Mm-hmm. That, I suppose, that did make a very big difference in a society where, um, I mean, I'm at the moment in San Francisco where I'm in the Castro where every single person is gay, which is most disconcerting because where I am, where I'm in my head, there's no one gay for 100 miles on all sides. <laughs> so I don't know what to do, whether to keep staring at them all or walk by or what, and they sure don't know what to do with me. But um, that, obviously, uh, the business of holding a secret like that, and, and that's, it happens in James. The best James books are where there's a secret. And if that secret is told, it will be explosive. And that, obviously, is what interested me so much about James at the beginning. Yeah. And that that obviously has mattered to me, both both personally and I suppose as a writer. I, I, and um, but I'm not sure in what ways. And I, I also maybe the Catholicism has mattered much more than I know. Mm. Um, in the sense, as as as, as Borges says, there are no camels mentioned in the Koran. <laughs> but that doesn't mean, of course, because there, there were camels everywhere. Right. You know, you don't need to mention there's a camel. <clears throat> so that um, the yeah, maybe much more important than I think. Right. So, Maybe if they banned it, I would start loving it again or something. Yeah. Okay. If they banned Catholicism the or, or the Castro, indeed. <laughs> well, we can arrange that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but, but to answer the, the question that I actually asked you about influence, um, for me, it's actually strange. It's a lot of Marvel and DC comics. If one of my friends is here that we kind of grew up together and we spent hours and hours reading these comics and, and, and Silver Surfer. All of my melancholy comes from the Silver Surfer. <laughs> um, this this incredible... I know the, yeah, as a child then the, there were these books that they shouldn't have allowed children to read. There were these little um, comic books from England called the Commando series about the Second World War. And there was a particular one called Darkies Mob that sort of stayed with me. And it's sort of all sort of the ways in which the the English, the um, the way the English are completely unaware and celebrate their own racism was all in that, <laughs> in those books. Um, but but Baldwin, reading him early, and 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 um, Dostoevsky, um, what was it? But I, I th- yeah, but you see, the, the thing too about sexuality for me, the, what's fascinating is is, and I play with it constantly in all my books. So there's this ambiguity for all my characters. 
and it's, it's intriguing because the, then the readers, particularly the editors, when I wrote this book about wanting to be a woman, this guy, he's dating a transsexual stripper, and, um, and, but I write the characters from the inside out. There's no spectacle to it. There's no way. It, it isn't written in a way they would expect a straight man to be. And, the, of course, the first question is, you know, where's, where's your body in relationship to this text? And it always fascinates me because before I wrote this book about wanting to be a woman, uh, this guy wanting to be a woman, I had always prided myself on sort of, um, while being straight, being completely not homophobic at all, until I had to write this book. And um, I wrote this scene where the character is finally about to make love to the transsexual stripper and realizes that that's not what he wants, and in fact he wants to occupy this position. And so you have that whole um, crying game moment. But instead of the penis revelation being the wonderful thing, <laughs> it's the penis disappearance. So this transsexual stripper is teaching this guy who's dressed in his virgin dress, how to disappear his penis um, so that he could wear a g-string where he to perform as a stripper. And I remember writing it and researching it on the internet and writing it and, and uh, my girlfriend at the time reading it going, this reads like a manual. Like, the rest of the book is beautiful and then, okay, over here we have the penis. Um, <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so I really had to go there in a sense. So I hired someone who performs as a woman and I said, okay, show me how to do this. And um, he said, well, it's easy, it's like the sumo wrestlers, you just push your balls up into your stomach and blah, 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 and his penis was gone. And so I was trying to push the balls up and it hurt like hell. And so he said, well, I'm going to have to help you, lie down. So I'm lying down on the floor, legs up, naked, there's a man over me who has to push these balls up into my stomach. And Do you have his number? <laughs> <laughs> This sort of whole scene where he, he has to, he showed me how it's done. And I remember standing up and feeling the most, the worst rage I've ever felt in my life. Because I hadn't realized how much of who I am as a man is actually tied, not just to this physical organ, but to the sense of its virginity from another man's hands. And it was the most incredible thing. But doubling it was this incredible sense of acquiescence. He was just ordering me around, go stand over there, sit over here. Do you have a video? Is it, is it a video? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Sorry. But it's sort of in that, in that moment, I realized that all of the bullshit that I've been mouthing for years, come test time, wasn't there. Um, and then for the first time realizing what had been an academic exercise, which is sort of the, 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 the acceptance of sexuality, all sexuality, or the notion of its fluidity, was suddenly this embodied way in which... I felt completely qualified to talk about it in a sort of way that I hadn't felt before, and that book is very different about it. And then all my editors it, asking me, when are you going to come out? When are you going to come out? Which is never going to happen, sadly. Um, because I think, you know, with my luck with women, it would have been much easier with men. But um, <laughs> <coughs> but I wanted to ask you, did, did that change the way, the moment you sort of said, okay, now, here I am, did that change your interaction with the text or with readership or with editorship and all these kind of ways. Yeah, I think we have to end it as in, yeah, obviously, for, for me writing down the opening section of the story of the night and publishing it was a, was a very big moment, which um, really was, um, was, was like you're describing, except, except I realised that I was going to go on doing it, you know. The, right. you know right. And the question then is putting the genie back in the bottle in the sense yeah. that I'm, I find being gay and being Irish really tiring. You know, <laughs> I'd love to rest briefly from either being gay, gay, gay or Irish, you know, and right. or maybe being bald will become my next subject. You know, <laughs> that, that some other thing you could be 
where you wouldn't have to be right. and obviously being a woman would be terrific I must I, I wish I'd thought of that <laughs> but anyway I think we've I think we've, we've um, I was, was going to suggest yeah, you guys are wonderful and, but I think we should open it up to the audience and ask uh, a few questions is that okay? Do y'all have any questions? What's the act of heresy that you got kicked out of your monastery for? Um, the act of heresy? All three of them. <coughs> All three of them? <laughs> The first one was that I, um, I started. I became a Buddhist while while a Catholic. Um, the second, <laughs> it's true. Uh, the second one was that I I began to walk around with all the sort of um, the books that were not available, the books of Judas, all these sort of apocryphal texts that we're, we're not supposed to have. And the third one was sort of um, when I decided to kill myself. I was thirteen and decided to kill myself, and they said, "No, you can't do that here. Go home." So. Yeah. Where did they send you? Home. Home? Yeah. Back to my parents' house. There's a woman there. When I was reading uh, the master, I kept wondering what circumstances you wrote a bit under, and I, and I could never think of Henry James in any other way now after having read that novel. Um, the, the, the first chapter was written in Italy. Um, in a beautiful house, and then the work had to be done. I, so I left it for about 18 months. And, um, and then I went back to Dublin and um, in a room full of books, in a room full of books on a table in longhand, um, morning, noon, and night. Um, my friend, uh, a biographer, when I said I stopped working at six, said, no, 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 you stop working at six for an hour <laughs> and you go back at seven and uh, that you work until you go to bed then. So I, I, I probably did work like that for two or three years then after that. And there was a lot of revision done on the book because I, was, I, was, I, I wasn't just saying everything once, I was saying everything one and a half times. So to try and, with the help of editors, you know, cut back the, one, the half time thing. Because it was quite difficult to get the actual style uh, that was longer than my usual one, but not as long as his usual one. But uh, yeah, it, was just, it was just work. It was just boring work. In approaching Henry James, was it something you wanted to, to comment about Henry James himself, about his literature, or was it something you kind of saw in Henry James's life that resonated with you in terms of some issues that you yourself wanted to express, or was it some combination in between? This is a question about the, the you know, why of the book, where, you know, why I thought I could, it, it, it's a strange, I think you, you, you must know, that. it's a mysterious process. You don't ever um, do it as strategy and if you did I think it would be disaster so and also the issues didn't especially interest me what, 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 what interested me was that it came to me as a, as a almost as a, as a person that I could see and it came to me partly because I went and did a 15 minute radio program about Henry James and started to talk about him and I had been doing a lot of work on him but it was sort of academic work and then suddenly the idea of this presence and then I picked the bits of his life that interested me most that chimed with things that had happened to me or emotionally interested me but it, but it came mysteriously in other words it didn't it wasn't just oh the next book is going to be a novel about Henry James because there is a need for such a book or I can you know it was simply on my way home that day or one of those days after that radio thing I actually saw how I could open it and I saw how I could end it. And um, 
it almost came to me as, as a set of words and a rhythm as much as an idea. There's a man behind the bar who wants to... <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. You spoke earlier about a woman considering the taste of sperm in her mouth. You said it was not political. The freedom or the, uh, the opportunity to think that way would strike me as completely political. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a terribly interesting moment in the book where, where in this political Nigeria, this issue is raised um, and she, she abhors it. She thinks it's awful. And um, it, it, it's, a part, it's a very fundamental part of her personality. She's not going to give in to this. And it certainly is political. But what, 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 what I mean about it is that it does not seem part of the agenda that outsiders might have seen to be the Nigerian agenda of that time. It's a different agenda, and, and therefore perhaps a much more important agenda for a Nigerian writer to raise, because it's not part of the, civ of the civil war, of Biafra, of, 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 any, you know, of, of any of the other issues which when we see the word Nigeria coming up, we think about. So therefore, uh, it, it, it's super political, and, 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 and perhaps uh, when Achebe was doing it, it was done with a sense of real mischief, because right. I'm going to raise an issue here right. that Nigerians are going to go, you know, that, that has not been mentioned in this society ever, like some of the sexual matters which you raise in your book. Which, which in our very conservative society's relation to sex right. become explosive when right. you mention them, right. such as, for example, the rapes in, the rapes in Graceland. Right. So, yes, the most political, but the least obviously so. Right. so I have a question oh, sorry, sorry, about Graceland. I was wondering if you could elaborate on Elvis's sexuality and what the different scenes mean. And you said you had a very fluid relationship with sexuality. No, um, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> wink, wink. But <laughs> no, I, I don't. Um, what I was saying is that I mean I'm, that I believe that it, that the reason I think maybe I, the reason I think that I teach in America, for instance, I can teach anything. I can teach the most violent scenes, people's heads ripped off, people drinking blood out of skulls. No one flinches. Mention the word penis in a graduate class, and everyone's like, "You said penis." Um, <laughs> And I'm fascinated by that, and, and it's also true in Nigeria. That, and I think that because, or you talk about homosexuality or anything in Nigeria, and for a long time Nigerians will tell you, "Oh, that that's a foreign sickness; it doesn't happen to us." Um, and this sort of space where I think the reason why there is such a reaction to it is that sexuality and gender is far more fluid than we're willing to accept it is. Um, and that's why we're so concerned in building this state, these sort of boundaries around them. And it was really important for me to have this boy growing up questioning the ways in which masculinity always exerts itself through violence. That you, all the rituals in the book, you can't come to be a man somehow. It doesn't matter how stylized being 14 in New Orleans and being taken to a, a prostitute, it doesn't matter in what ways, that, on what culture, it's always around violence and always around a, a woman's body. Um, and so it's not so much that um, his uncle is gay, but that it's the ways in which sex comes to be associated with violence constantly through the book. And the rape scene where the uncle rapes his niece, where um, Elvis is watching, where he's simultaneously disgusted and turned on, and then later he comes back to where his, his cousin is lying there crying. And this young woman who's just been raped now has to comfort him. And in that moment I thought, this is exactly what, in many ways, what men are like. Um, we have no words, almost no language for tenderness between us as men. And certainly not between 
real tenderness between men and women. It's a very fractured thing, and it's always around power. So that's kind of what I was playing with in that way. And sort of earlier, before the uncle rapes him, he there there's a sort of sim simulated homosexual sex going on between the boys, and which is again what, what most young men will not accept. Um, like I don't I don't think there's any man here who hasn't stood at one point before a mirror and folded his penis back to create a fake vagina. But you bring it up, and everyone's like, "Ooh." It's like you did it, dude. <laughs> um, and it's the, same, it's the same way in which the, the, the what would be a healthy exploration of sexuality becomes interrupted and made into something foul and something violent by the way patriarchy seeks to control it. So that's what I was going for on that. So. Well, in 1897, Henry James, his hand got too sore, and he began to dictate the novels. And it's halfway through what Maisie knew. And I don't think you can find the scene from um, his writing to his dictation. And similarly, I don't think it makes any difference. I, I really don't. I, I think that, just, just whatever you're used to, I think, it would be, I think it would be really wrong to say, oh, writing done on a computer has to be by its very nature, something or other. I think that um, perhaps some of the best poems now, because of the speed at which you can erase and, and revise on a computer and see the new version you know, on the screen, I think that perhaps some of the best poems being written now are written on a screen, which one doesn't associate with poetry. So I, I don't, I, what do you think? I don't think it makes any difference. Um, I don't think essentially it makes any difference, but I teach creative writing, and for me what, what the difference it makes is that there is a distance between the maker of the work and the work that's made. So my students don't proofread, or when they proofread, they rely on spell check, which doesn't tell you anything. Um, so there's no way in which the work is printed off and actually seen as a, as work, as a book, as it will exist in the world. As and there's, so there's non there's no way in which the, the students is usually often engaging with the work properly to allow it to breathe in a certain way. So I, I don't think it's the medium. I think it's that sometimes the medium is associated with speed, and that that. Speed is anathema, in my opinion, to any good writing, even though some best writing can be done with speed, but, yeah. You just heard a Bomb Live event featuring Colm Tobin and Chris Abani. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.